This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. 
Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 365 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Annette Zapp. Now, Annette is a career firefighter and also the woman behind Fire Rescue Fitness. So we cover a host of topics from her diverse spectrum of fitness training through spin, through step, and then ultimately finding the NSCA and TSAC through her own firefighter journey and her mental health journey. So, so many topics that we cover in this discussion. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does make this podcast more visible to people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library for you, the audience, individually, organizationally, however you choose to use it. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single ear hole on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Annette Zapp. Enjoy. Well, Annette, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you, James. You know what? Yours is one of the first podcasts that I ever listened to, and a lot of great people that I have a lot of respect for have been on it, so this is a great honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, as you mentioned, the great people. Jeff, I think Jeff Nichols and Cofield both told me to reach out to you, and it's funny because I know that we've been friends online for quite a while now, and I have this kind of organic squirrel brain I almost almost uh, compare it to the lottery balls, you know, where they're bouncing around, they reach in and grab one. That's that's how my brain works. So obviously, <laughs> this was the time that we were supposed to connect. <laughs> you know what? I think firefighter brains in general all work like that. Absolutely. All right. So first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? James, I am. I live in a suburb of Chicago. I'm about 30 miles, but about an hour west of Chicago. And I transplanted myself here in 1997, and I've been in the Chicagoland area ever since. Beautiful. Well, you said transplanted, so let's start at the very beginning then. So where were you actually born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Okay. 
Uh, my parents were both born and raised in South Dakota, rural South Dakota, and I was born in Madison, South Dakota, which is a very small town. And we, you know, sometimes it's even a little unclear to me where we lived at certain times because we did move around a lot. I was an only child for eight years. We lived in South Dakota for a short amount of time, and then we relocated to Colorado. And uh, we were relocated a couple times in Colorado. And then about eight years into my life, my parents blessed our family with a sibling. So I have one brother who's eight years younger than I am. And after Colorado, we moved to Utah for a few years. And then my parents and my family moved back to South Dakota. We lived on a farm for a bit of time. And then we moved into a medium-sized city in South Dakota. And then finally, when I was a junior in high school, my parents permanently relocated to a small town, Salem. And they have owned a hardware store in Salem, South Dakota, since uh, I was a junior in high school. So if you want to summarize that, I moved around a lot up until the time I was a junior in high school. And then my parents put down their roots. And then I started moving myself around. And what do you think was it that made your parents relocate so many times? You know what? They were really, really young parents. My dad was 19 when I was born. My mom was 21. And I think they just didn't quite know what they wanted to do when they got big. And so my mom was a school teacher when I was born. And my dad worked kind of various blue collar jobs. He owned a gas station for a little while. He worked for the company Union Carbide, which I don't even think it exists anymore. But he was a uranium miner for Union Carbide. And then he got a couple of promotions and he worked in the office. And I think that they're, my parents were entrepreneurs, to be honest with you. But back in the early 70s, no one really knew what that looked like. And so I think they were always searching for that that ability to have their own business and be their own bosses. And so I think that's ultimately how they ended up on the farm. But they bought the farm at a really bad time. I think it was 1984. So prices were super high. And then the market crashed. And so the farm was basically worthless at that point. And so I think that's how they eventually ended up at the hardware store, just that entrepreneurial spirit where they wanted to own their own business. Beautiful. So they own their own store though? They do. And you know, it's the, the store itself is over 100 years old. And the, the town is 1500 people. And at the time my parents bought the hardware store, there were actually two hardware stores right across the street from each other. Um, and the other one has long since closed. But yeah, my parents is, it's the typical, you walk in, and it, it looks like it's 100 years old. And it's about eight aisles and two stories. And that's all it is. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, they ended up owning their own business, though. So they, they were their own bosses. So it's still a success story, really. It is. It just took them a really long time to decide <laughs> that's what they wanted to do. Absolutely. Well, moving around, you know, that's something that I never did. And I, and I you know, would see on films or hear people talking about it, you know, military kids and that kind of thing where they were constantly uprooted, constantly the new kid. Um, what was that like for you going through the school system and changing locations all the time? I think, James, it was good and bad. Let me backtrack for one second to it's coming to light that these adverse childhood experiences can really affect us in adulthood. So adverse childhood experiences are things like seeing your mother get beat by your father or your parents getting divorced or you being injured by your parents or you not feeling safe at home. 
there's like 10 categories of adverse childhood experiences, which can actually project themselves into your adulthood. But having said that, there's also this concept of developing resilience. And one of the ways that you can develop resilience is successfully moving around as a child. So I think it was good and bad. It was good because I became excellent at making new friends. I became excellent at assimilating myself. I was kind of like a chameleon. I could assimilate myself into a new environment really quickly. But as an adult, although I do think it made me somewhat resilient, I also think it made me have difficulties in relationships because as a child, I would, you know, go into a school system, I would make friends and, you know, you have fights with your friends, you have disagreements. Well, I never really had to learn how to resolve those disagreements because it wasn't going to be long before we picked up and moved again and I could make all new friends. So again, good and bad. I think I turned out pretty well overall. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you you talk about, you know, the the list. One thing that I'm seeing more and more, you know, so many people have come on the show and I just had... Um, a police officer, Sean Wyman, the other day talking about, you know, how he was beaten so badly by his stepdad that he basically was about to murder him. He had the gun pointed at him when he was asleep and then just stopped at the last second. So those are obviously very, very, you know, glaring uh, traumatic incidents. But there are several guests, many guests now, that it was simply not feeling loved by a parent that was equally traumatic for that person. Absolutely. And I think there's some data, it's not super, super compelling at this point, but there's some data that's showing that individuals that have a certain number of adverse childhood experiences are more prone, excuse me, more prone to PTSD. And we know that PTSD is a predictor of suicide. So it's a really interesting checklist. And I wish I would have written down the website for you, but it's a basically a 10 point checklist that you go through and you tally up how many of these adverse childhood experiences that you've had. And then the data is showing that at least in the military, people that have had these adverse childhood experiences are choosing that career. And that's the one they, they refer to as the ACE scale. Yes, exactly. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Well, then with your childhood again, uh, tell me about the sporting element. Were you a sports person back then? Yes and no. Because my parents, again, they were young, they were working really hard, both of them worked full time. Uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of time for youth soccer or t-ball or anything like that. So, you know, I remember playing with my parents and biking and things like that. But as far as developing hand-eye coordination and things like that, still as a, an adult, I have none. Uh, when I was in middle school, I wanted to play all of the sports. And my parents, we lived at a, in the farm at that time, and they simply did not have time to run me back and forth into town for games and practices year round. And so they said, you have to make a decision. You can choose one sport. And so I'm not sure exactly why, but I chose track and field as my sport. And I think that that was a smart decision because absent that hand-eye coordination, I think tra uh, track and field is a great developer of, you know, long-term athletic ability. So I did run track in junior high and high school. I was not a phenom, that's for sure. And I walked on to a college team for a couple of years just for the fun of it. But I was not a standout athlete by any means, James. <laughs> you're right with the hand-eye coordination, though. I mean, even if you're doing the uh, discus or the javelin, at least you're just throwing it away from your body. 
<laughs> yeah, Lord have mercy. I still, my crew sometimes throws keys at me just to, like, I'm a cat with a ball of string. I miss and they fall and they think it's hilarious. <laughs> have you ever seen the... Uh... The videos went viral of dogs not catching things. It's all in slow motion. <laughs> That's me. That is me. It's bad. All right. Well, then again, school age, what about career aspirations? What were you hoping to be? That's a great question because, you know, some of some of my friends and coworkers don't even know this, but I aspired to be a law enforcement agent and I wanted desperately federal law enforcement. So I didn't want to be a local cop. I wanted to be initially FBI. So everything I did in my preparation, basically from junior high all the way through college, was to get ready to apply to the FBI. And at the time, so this is in the late 80s, at the time to get into the FBI, you needed a bachelor's in Basically, you could do a bachelor's in some sort of science. You could be a computer programmer, an expert in language, a lawyer, and I think there's one more that I'm forgetting. So there's basically five avenues to get into the FBI. And so I thought, hey, I'm I'm good at this science thing. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pursue a uh, bachelor's in biology. The caveat was, if you had a bachelor's and a science degree, you needed three years of work experience. So I thought, no problem. I'll get this bachelor's in biology. I'll go get a job for three years and I can apply it to the FBI. The thing that no one tells you, James, and I think it's probably still true today, you can't get a job with a bachelor's in biology. I could have maybe worked for the forest service or something like that, but there were no jobs to be had. And so I kind of panicked I, I pivoted and I went ahead and started a master's program because you could get into the FBI with a master's in science without that requisite work experience. So I started at the University of South Dakota School of Medicine and, and actually I started in a PhD program and ultimately decided just to bail with a master's. But the unfortunate fact of the matter is once I finished that master's degree and I started that process of applying for the FBI, I was stopped very quickly due to my very poor vision. So you needed to have vision uncorrected, no worse than I believe 2040. And I was around 2200. And they had no, they did not allow any surgical interventions at that time. So the only thing available was the um, RK, I believe it was called, and it was not allowed. That's so crazy. I know it's crazy. So, and, and I believe James that their reasoning at the time was they were afraid that once you got up in an airplane, your eyeballs were going to blow up. Which Hashtag is science. Yeah. Which is, you know, absolutely proven. <laughs> I saw it in the national Enquirer the other day. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am now I have this master's in biochemistry. What am I going to do with it? So I worked for a couple of years in a lab and at the same time I had begun teaching fitness classes. So this is a little bit embarrassing, but I was teaching step aerobics at the rec center. And I really, really started to enjoy that aspect of interacting with people, helping them improve their lives, um, bringing them some joy. And so I sort of on my off time began pursuing a personal training certification as well as teaching more different types of classes. And that became what I loved way more than science. And so 
1997, I decided I'm making a huge career change because remember my childhood, turning my life upside down is no big deal. So taking my master's in biochemistry and basically putting it in my back pocket and walking away was no big deal. And so I am living in South Dakota and I looked at a couple of different meccas of fitness, if you will. I looked at moving to Florida. I looked at moving to Arizona and I looked at moving to Chicago. And the reason I looked at Chicago is that there was one particular trainer that I really, really believed was an icon in the industry. And his name was David Mesro, and he happened to work at a club in Chicago. So David Mesro probably doesn't even know this, but I moved to Chicago to basically work for and under David. And so that's how sort of the fitness career got started in 1997. Now, did I hear, I, I don't recognize the name, but did I hear you mention in the podcast that was the, the father of spin? Um, no, actually, that's Johnny G. Uh, David Mesro was... Way back in the the uh, late 90s, we had Reebok master trainers, and uh, David was one of the original Reebok master trainers, and he worked at the Evanston Athletic Club, so he ran the whole program there. So he was amazing. Okay, so uh, Johnny, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to. So tell me what that looked like. So I'm kind of interested. What was that that kind of fitness philosophy back then? Um, a lot of a lot a lot a lot of group exercise classes. Um. Some personal training, especially in Chicago, there was more personal training, but a lot of uh, fitness revolved around, you know, getting dressed up, putting on your matching outfit and coming in and doing your one hour group exercise class every day. And it was sort of a social engagement for most people, especially up on the shores of, you know, Chicago. Brilliant. So then, um, you know, to lead me through you actually moving there and, and then where that took you. <laughs> you know, I told you how many times I moved when I was a child. I continued that process a little bit <laughs> as an adult, if we're going to be honest. So I moved to the Chicago suburbs. It, it wasn't particularly close to Evanston. So I was commuting. And what I realized relatively quickly was it was going to be a little bit difficult to support myself just trying to work at Evanston Athletic Club. So I got another job at a company also in Evanston that put on fitness conferences. So I was doing two jobs at the same time. It was very convenient. I would go to the fitness conference job, you know, work for half a day, go teach a couple classes, come back, work for half a day and go back home. But if you know anything about Chicagoland area, commuting from I was in Naperville to Evanston, there's no good way to get there. So eventually it became very time prohibitive as well as cost prohibitive by spending a ton of money on gas. So I started looking for something a little bit more local and I came across a hospital-based wellness center very close to me. And so I kind of put everything with Evanston Athletic Club and with the fitness conference company, kind of just put that on the back burner. And I started working full-time at this hospital-based wellness center. The whole time I was doing this, I was really enjoying it. But as you know, everyone in the fitness industry will tell you this, there's no security. So unless you work at an unbelievable club, you can be working full time, but you'll still have no health insurance benefits. You'll still have no paid time off, no sick leave, nothing like that. So even though I was absolutely loving what I was doing, I just felt like I needed to be an adult and get a real job. And so 
back onto my horizon came the law enforcement. And, you know, fortuitously, the federal government had changed the requirements and they had made it so that you could have corrective surgeries. So now that obstacle that was in my way was no longer in my way. So I started the process again, but I decided, you know what, I'm kind of mad at the FBI because I, I put all my eggs in that basket and they let me down. (laughs) Or your eyeballs in one basket. I put all my eyeballs (laughs) in the same basket. And so I was like, you know what, I'm not going to apply to the FBI this time. I'm going to apply to the Secret Service. And so I went in 2000 and I got uh, LASIK surgery, which as a side note, James, that was the best money I have ever spent in my life. 20 years later, I still have 2015 vision and I don't need reading glasses. So there's endorsement for LASIK surgery. <laughs> yeah, I had I had it done on one eye and uh, it was really good, but it's starting to fail a little bit now. So I probably need to get a touch up done. But yeah, I was amazed. The only thing that, that wasn't right is they were like, oh, and then, you know, the next day you're going to be fine. They didn't tell me about the six months of itching and dry eye of the procedure that I had done. But that being said, my right eye was terrible, and it's been amazing since. So I will, I will, you know, second your uh, advocation for LASIK. Absolutely, and you know what? I I did ask my eye doctor about it now because I I have that sort of lifetime guarantee. I said, you know, what if what if my vision starts to go? And he said, you know what? At your age now, unfortunately, if we refine it, you're probably going to need reading glasses right away. So. That was a hard no for me. (laughs) (laughs) But again, uh, I I had the LASIK surgery and then I was uh, able to go through the hiring process for the Secret Service. And I was so elated. I was so excited. I got an official offer for the Secret Service. And and so unfortunately, it was dated. I believe I still have the letter, but it was dated end of August 2001. And then September 11th happened. And all of the federal agencies freaked out and did a hiring freeze. And so my offer was rescinded. Oh, no. (laughs) I know, right? And so it was kind of back to the drawing board. But I was still working at that hospital-based wellness center. And I started meeting these firefighters from the local fire department. And I started chatting them up. And I told them about my, my job search, so to speak. And they said, well you would be a great firefighter, especially if you're interested in law enforcement, you know, you should come do a ride along with us and so on and so forth. And those firefighters that I spoke with happened to be some of my coworkers today. And so I, I went through that process. I did the ride along with them. I asked them, you know, what are the requirements? What do I need to do? I went and got my EMT. I went and got my paramedic license and I went through the hiring process and raised my hand in March of 2004. That is amazing. That's the same year I got hired. Oh my gosh, that's great. Beautiful. All right. So then with with your background in fitness, um, lead me through just kind of how you, f- how you felt prepared physically for you know, orientation at Academy, all that kind of uh, chapter of the fire service. You know, I think for the most part, I felt really confident about my fitness abilities. Unfortunately, back in the early 2000s, I was probably a little bit too married to the idea of cardio, and I ran some marathons for fun. I don't know if anyone runs marathons for fun, but I ran some marathons for fun, 
And uh, you mentioned Johnny G earlier. I actually had started working for Johnny G and the spinning program. So I was teaching uh, people how to instruct spinning all over the country. So I was a little bit of a what I would term a cardio bunny. But I think overall, I was very well prepared for the academy and kind of kicked butt and took names. Interesting. I've just been talking to uh, Marine Recon, um, Z, become good friends now. Um, And he actually has challenged me with almost a full circle back to having that cardio base. And his thing is, you know, we've become so focused on strength and conditioning and high impact, high intensity workouts that sometimes we're losing that kind of longer term cardio base and obviously the marines and the fire service are two different animals when it comes to length of you know operation but uh you know i'm interested to see he's a very science-based uh individual to kind of unpack his thought process to see if maybe that's something that we need to visit with a little bit more longer lower intensity cardio in our training I think with just like anything, it's that huge pendulum. And I'll use the example. Um, I believe it was Nate Palin from NSCA that was talking about this. The army especially, you know, was so calisthenic and running and rucking based. And then they finally got these strength and conditioning specialists in there who then went so far in the other direction of maxing out squats and deadlifts and all of that stuff. And they're finally, you know, I guess five years later realizing it needs to be somewhere in the middle because you're right. You need that uh, aerobic capacity for many, many things. And, you know, I just probably didn't have quite enough of the, the strength capacity that I needed. I've, I've developed that in the last 16 years with a vengeance though. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is it's a happy medium. Have you seen the the new army uh, annual test or entrance test that they have now? Yes. And I actually um, am so honored. I'm friends with Major Bigham, who was one of the developers of that test. And, you know, everyone has their opinion, but I think it's it's yards and football fields ahead of the old test. I think it's great. Um, and I think it'll probably evolve over time, but yeah, I think it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, just, it just looks so much more functional and that's what I find with the fire service show when I unpack in a little bit, but you know, when there's, when there's discussions of an annual test, for example, you know, sometimes just as you mentioned, I, I've witnessed it in my last apartment where guys talking about max bench and you have to be able to do this with percentage of your body weight. And I'm like, well, hold on, you know, that's exactly the kind of programming and, and, uh, uh, ideas that are going to get every every person who's threatened by maybe not being as in shape as they thought they were totally pushing against but if you do a job specific annual fitness test where you're carrying you know, implements or a simulation of implements that are exactly what we do on the fire ground a that makes a lot more sense and b no one can really contest it because of what you have to do for your job anyway I agree. And, you know, these, um, I just had this conversation the other day with uh, a firefighter about a consumption test. And, you know, the problem with consumption tests is, first of all, some of them don't even make sense. And second of all, they're not standardized. And third of all, the department half the time can't even explain your results to you. Like, are you wanting me to go as long as possible? Or are you wanting me to go as many laps as possible? Or, or is it a happy medium? It's just, it's frustrating, James. And we need to get a lot more science into the fire service. There are great scientists studying fire and we're just not, it's not getting past the barrier because of that whole, it's the way we've always done it thing. 
Yeah. Well, I see the other side too, where, you know, you will have the army, the air force, the navy, the sporting world, you know, marines, special operations, all having amazing research. And the fire service go, oh, yeah, we ha- I need to see studies in the fire service. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> Those alpha, you know, human tactical athletic machines have got all this data. Why the hell does the fire service need to do their own? They are also tactical athletes. Are you that unimaginative that you can't see their results and apply it to our profession? You you are so right. You're absolutely correct. And and I always say this, you know, the fire service is that hundred years of tra- tradition unimpeded by progress. So we're going to be in that hole until we start digging ourselves out. Yeah, and that's what we're hoping to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then I know this. You know, we're going to get to kind of some mental health stories as we progress chronologically. When you first entered the fire service, um, were, you know, how were you, what kind of mental space were you in then? And then, you know, were there any changes once you started working shifts and started seeing some of the things that we see? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do very much when I started the fire service was to bring that fitness to my department. And ironically, and I didn't mention this, and I, in fact, I sometimes forget that I even did this before I worked for my department. I actually contracted with them as a civilian to do their wellness and fitness testing and some lectures and things like that. So I thought, isn't this going to be a great fit? I'm going to get hired by my department and I'm still going to be able to do these things for them and help these coworkers. And I was pretty much, my tail got slammed in the door because they told me now that you work here, this is a conflict of interest to contract with you for these services. And so that to me was a pretty big slap in the face, but I decided, well, you know what? I can still, I'm a firefighter. I can do my side job. I'll still work at the hospital-based wellness center. I'll still travel the country working for Johnny G. So I'll have my fingers in that fitness, you know, even though my fire department doesn't want to utilize my services any longer. And so 2004, I got hired I was traveling for Johnny G probably maybe 10 to 15 weekends a month. I'm sorry, a year, 10 to 15 weekends a year. And so I was doing shift trades and taking vacations and all that stuff to be able to do that traveling. And I was loving it. I was absolutely loving it. And then one day I got so angry at an event that I called them up and I said, I quit. I can't do this any longer. And I sent them a letter of resignation. And so something that I had loved so much, I had loved so much to do for, for years, for for five years at that point, I quit over a small disagreement with one facility. And at the time that didn't really set off any warning bells to me. So my former happy-go-lucky self who loved traveling for this company quit basically with no notice out of anger. And so it never occurred to me that was odd. And before I started the fire service, I had a lot of friends and I would make plans and I would I would go. I love to go to conferences and I love to learn and meet people and I started making plans and then canceling the plans. 
because I was quote unquote tired or quote unquote needed to de-stress. And so probably this was probably a year after I started the fire service, I started canceling those plans and becoming more isolated and kind of doing my thing all the time. I also had, because I was an only child for so long and because I had that issue of picking up and moving on without, you know, having to work out any issues with friends, I never really learned conflict resolution. And so as you know, in the fire service, you know, two plus two is four and that's what it is. And if you say one plus three is four, somebody's going to tell you you're full of crap and you're wrong. And not only are you wrong, you're stupid. And so having people constantly tell me I was wrong and I was doing things wrong, I didn't know how to have that conflict with them, resolve it and move on. And so every single day at work became a soul crushing exercise in, um, I don't know, I can't even explain to you how I felt when I went home every day. I felt defeated. I felt like no one liked me. I felt like I was doing a terrible job. I was stupid. And things just started to spiral down in terms of me being angry all the time and pissed off all the time. And so I'll press pause on that for just one second because chronologically in 2007, I had one more chance at federal law enforcement because they had changed an age requirement. So they had bumped it from 35 to 37 and I still qualified. And so I thought, you know what, I'm not enjoying this fire service thing. I'm, I'm, I'm bad at it. People don't like me. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pursue this law enforcement thing one more time. And so I was mad at the FBI. Don't forget Then I was mad at the Secret Service. It wasn't their fault, but I got the offer and then it was rescinded. So I decided, you know what, ATF, that's the way to go because it's it's something I'm already interested in. Uh, They have fire investigations. I think that's a great great process for me to go through. So in 2006 slash 2007, I went through that hiring process and actually did get an offer from the ATF. And unfortunately... um, or fortunately, I'm not sure, but I did not take the offer because it was for East St. Louis, which is a terrible area. Um, I had just bought a home in the suburbs of Chicago. There's no way I would have been able to sell my home. I was married at that point, so I would have been dragging with me an unemployed husband. And so it just didn't make sense for me to take that job at that time. So I did turn it down. But now looking back, on all of those events and uh, all of those, I guess, feelings that I was having, I also have to tell you that I should have probably been getting in trouble at work because I was being aggressive and mouthy to patients. I was um, constantly, just constantly pissed off. If you said anything to me, I would just explode. And so I think I'm actually pretty fortunate that I didn't get myself in a whole heap of trouble at work during that time. Yeah, well, and just just to kind of stay on that point for a second, I think we can all relate to that in ourselves. And definitely, that we all know that one coworker that's like that. And, you know, we used to think that person was just an asshole. But now, right. what I've been exposed to the last few years, I'm like, oh, no, that the, these people are just 
hurrying, you know, whether it's personal, whether it's, you know, the job, obviously, usually it's, it's a combination of everything. But yeah, I mean, I've seen people lose their shit on, on a, you know, on a person in, in the back of a rescue who, you know, made a frequent flyer, whatever they were, but absolutely, you know, not, not physically attack the patient, but yeah, verbal, verbal abuse. And, you know, it's like, that goes on all the time. And I think that is a huge red flag that we used to just accept. Like, oh, so-and-so is having a bad, bad day. And then we start pushing their buttons, you know, and make it even worse. But yeah, I mean, you talk about warning signs. That is such a glaring one. If you know you used to be person X and nothing's changed other than you're wearing a different uniform now, and now you're a shadow of who you used to be. That is a, a you know, a, a glaring, glaring um, warning sign that I have myself. Like, my last apartment, organizational stress-wise, was awful. And I look back and was like, I used to be so jokey. I used to be so laid back and just banging my head against a brick wall, trying to make changes to improve, you know, the training level, the fitness level, the mental health, the sleep. I mean, they had such a huge budget as well, so there was no excuse. And, you know, it, it to the point where I was that person. I, I had the hair trigger because I was just so fucking angry all the time that no one seemed to care that our lack of training was going to kill someone. I agree. And, and you know, it's just, I, I think I told you this uh, via email. I'm a pretty smart person. But to me, I thought depression looked like I can't get out of bed. I can't stop crying. I don't want to do anything. But depression can look a lot different for a lot of different people. And, you know, anger is a really, really strong sign of it. I just didn't know. And I wish someone had educated me prior to starting the fire service. Yeah, exactly. That's something that we need to explore as well. So then just, as you said, you know, that, that was a, a segue. You didn't take that particular um, offer. Those first few years, though, were you able to, to at least, you know, off the clock, as it were, start um, inspiring the firefighters you work with to work on their fitness? No, I would say I would say no, James, because along about that time in 2007, when I didn't take the job with the ATF, I also sort of gave up the job at the fitness center. I was still prioritizing my own fitness, but I I kind of just thought, well, you know what? No one wants to listen to me. And so I'm going to stop talking and wasting my breath. And so I actually sort of built myself a makeshift home gym and started to train a few one-on-one um, -on -one clients, which my makeshift home gym has evolved into a pretty nice division one level gym, by the way. <laughs> but at that time, um, and that's kind of how I stayed attached to fitness. I just said, you, you know, if you don't want to listen to me, I'm not going to beat my head against the wall anymore. I'm kind of done. Yeah. Well, I, and that that phrase, the, the prophets never held in their own land, I think it is or never received in their own land. I hear that from so many people. I mean, all the, the, the fire service greats that we all revere in their own department, they talk about the same exact experience. And that's what I counsel people. I've had some amazing, there's not a ton of them nationwide, but there are a few amazing, amazing top-notch coaches that happen to be firefighters. And a lot of them reach out to me. They're like, hey, how did you get your business started? How can I get this started at my department? And the first thing I tell them, don't do it at your department. Go somewhere else. And once you get it started somewhere else, your department may be interested, but don't even try starting it at your own department. 
you're going to drive yourself crazy. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a good segue then. So you're working there. You considered moving to ATF. It didn't work out um, you know, geographically. Um, you know, you're with with I'm assuming a spouse that that ultimately was spiraling downwards as well. So then, walk me through the next few years. How you know what was the next level? Was it a step down further, or, or was there a, an upshift? You know, I think the next few years. The people that know me now would never believe that I'm saying this, but I think the next few years, I was just marking time. I was like, I just need to get through this life. I need to get through this job until I can get to something that I actually enjoy. And I think that probably the next, so 2007 to maybe 2012 were all just kind of a blur. But there was there was one thing that happened in 2012 that I think it was a horrible thing, but I think it ultimately set me on my path and my destiny for where I am today. And it's a real interesting story. And I guess I'll just brush the top of it. And and if you want more details, you can definitely delve deeper, but no, let's, let's let's start right. Cause I've heard it before. So, so take your time, tell the story. Cause I think it's a very powerful story and it needs to be told the right way. Okay. And you know what? I think I think you are right because our mutual friend Chris Fields always says if you've got a story to tell, you need to tell it. And I think you're right. This one needs to be told. So, I was I laying in bed one summer night in 2012 and I had gone to bed even early for me because I was getting up the next morning to travel with my best friend to Milwaukee for a game, a Brewers game with his family. And the windows were open. It was a really nice night. And all of a sudden, I heard that unmistakable sound of glass shattering the the sound that you that you can never forget once you've heard it and I opened my eyes and all I could see kitty corner from my house was flames shooting out of a what turned out to be the kitchen window and so um it's it's really interesting I think that I'm a clear thinker but on this night I definitely wasn't I had a lot of downfalls but I threw my clothes on and I threw on a set of flip flops and I grabbed my phone and I ran out through my garage, grabbing my garage door opener and ran through my backyard and I encountered a neighbor there standing kind of watching. And so I yelled at him, you know, you know, please call 911, make sure that they're coming. And I continued running through kind of the backyards to this house and it was the kitchen was pretty heavily involved. And so I ran around to the front door of the house thinking, I don't know what I was thinking, James, but I was thinking I was going to save somebody. And I booted that door in and the smoke was thick, chunky black and almost down to the floor. And so I pretty sure was not going in that way. So I shut the door and I ran around the B side of the house and I ran into a giant, just an enormous man, chest to chest, ran into him. And he he seemed like he was dazed or confused or maybe intoxicated. I, I wasn't sure. But he was very near to the house. And so I said to him, is this your house? And he kind of ignored me or didn't answer me or whatever. So I grabbed him by the collar and I pulled him close to me. And I said, is this your house? And he said, yes. And I said, well, for the love of Christ, is anyone inside? And he said, yeah, my baby cousin. And so at that point I was absolutely panicked. So 
I wasn't thinking logically. I ran back to the front door somehow thinking things were going to be different and they weren't different. I opened that front door and the conditions were worse. So I ran again around the B side. I don't know what I was thinking I was going to do, but I looked up and there were two very large individuals, both getting ready to jump. And I could tell that they were safe if they would just shut their door. I could hear the sirens coming. Um, I, and I, I begged them. I said, don't jump, don't jump. Help is coming. Just stay where you are. And at that point, I looked towards the back of the house. And all I could see was neighbors gathering around and watching. And um, I've never been so frustrated in my life. Like, how can you adult men and women sit there and watch while I'm running around trying to help. And so as this thoughts go processing through my mind, I hear splat, splat. The two people from the second floor have jumped now and they're both crying, moaning because they're big and they have broken legs. And so I'm trying to drag these people away from the house. And again, the neighbors are watching and so I just started screaming, somebody come fucking help me. And so finally, a couple of the men that were watching came and helped me drag the individuals away from the house. And at that point, the sirens were silent. I looked over, heard the air brake set on the first engine that was due. And I, I ran up there and I said to the officer, there's a baby trapped inside. Because remember, the giant man said, my baby cousin. <clears throat> so I told the officer and then I, I went over to the engineer. I helped the engineer make the hydrant hook up. Um, they actually went defensive initially on the fire because the house was so heavily involved and I just went home. I, I didn't know what else to do. I was like, well, my work here is done. I'll go home. I got things to do tomorrow. I'm going to go to a game. And I woke up in the morning, James, and I was not okay. Um, I was so upset because I thought a baby had died on my watch. And so I called my best friend and I said, you know, buddy, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. And I told him what happened. And he kindly, because he's my best friend and the best person in the world, offered to cancel his plans and come sit with me. And because I'm a tough girl and angry all the time, I told him, nope, I'm good. Just do your plans. I'm okay. But I wasn't okay, James. And so a couple hours went by in the morning and I tried a couple of things to make myself feel better. I went shopping, I went and got a massage and I didn't feel better. So I came home and when I got home, there were some men sitting on my front porch who uh, looked official. And as it turns out, they were, um, they were with the state fire marshal's office, um, the county sheriffs and also the ATF, ironically, and they were investigating a murder because the man that I had put my hands on had actually started that house on fire after he shot his baby cousin who was in his 20s over an argument. Uh, then he poured gasoline all through the living room and started that house on fire while his aunt and uncle were asleep in the bedroom upstairs. And so I'm pretty sure that those officers maybe shouldn't have been telling me that story, but they could see how upset I was and they wanted to make sure that I knew that I hadn't let a baby die. And so they took my statement 
and they left and I kept thinking, am I going to feel okay? When am I going to feel better? And I, I just, I never felt better. And so I finally had the, uh, the gumption and the intuition maybe to, to realize I probably needed to talk to someone. And so I called our headquarters station because, um, I didn't want to bother my best friend because he's enjoying his game because I shut him out. So I called our headquarters station, hoping that someone would answer that would talk to me. And I was really, really lucky that, um, a Lieutenant answered his name, uh, was Scott gray or is Scott gray. And he listened to my story and he listened to how upset I was. And he said something that probably at this point saved my life, which was pack your shit. You're coming to the station to stay with us. And I tried to do the tough girl thing that I did with my best friend. No, I'm fine. I'm, I don't need to do that. And he's a very imposing man. And so he said it again, pack your shit. You're coming to the station to stay with us. And so I did. And when I got there, we ordered a pizza as big as the table. And we ate the pizza and we talked and I felt a little bit better. You know, and at this point, I almost feel like I should insert that. Although I always felt like no one liked me and everyone was judging me and I wasn't doing a good job. That was my perception. Although there were probably some people that didn't like me. It was by no means everyone. And although a few people probably thought I didn't do a good job, the majority of people did think I did a good job. And so those firefighters that sat with me that night sort of reinforced to me that I did belong, that I was doing a good job and I needed to be there. And so although that night was horrific, it sort of snapped me back into reality and it sort of recalibrated to me what was important and what was not important. And so I guess when I say pivotal, I think that's the reason why. Well, firstly, thank you so much for telling the story. I mean, I know, you know, I can, I can hear it in your voice that it's hard and, and so many people that are so courageous that, that relay stories like that, you know, it, it, I understand the toll it takes, but I understand how important it is because it makes people realize, you know, these stories are ones that actually, you know, people can relate to statistics and PowerPoint presentations. No one can relate to that crap. Let's be honest. But I just want to highlight that moment. So that was a perfect unification, perfect synergy of someone who has the realization that they need help, having the courage to ask for help. And then someone in this case, Scott Gray, being the person who reaches out their arm. And so often we lose people because one or both of those aren't present. So the fact that, as you mentioned, you know, your perception that the crew didn't care, but actually, even if you'd hurt feelings or whatever, being, you know, being uh, aggressive or pissed off in the station, when it actually, when you know, when the rubber meets the road, they realize that this is a moment that you truly needed help and all that was, you know, irrelevant and they stepped up and did exactly what was needed so i i commend you for your courage reaching out and i commend them for being the epitome of brotherhood and sisterhood absolutely and you know a couple other people have, have often asked me you know how do you think he knew 
not to just let you hang up the phone. How do you think he knew that you needed to come there? Because James, I'm pretty sure that if I hadn't come there, he probably would have gotten in a fire engine and come pick, picked my sorry ass up. (laughs) So they say, how did he know that? And I think one of the reasons is he's just a very smart man. He's a battalion chief now. He's a great leader. But the other one is I think he it's because he has a brother in the military. And so I think Ryan's experiences in the military probably enlightened Scott to some extent. So I think between him being just a smart guy and his brother's military experience, I think that that was the perfect storm for him to reach out his hand. Yeah, well, it's such a great story and it illustrates exactly what we all need to do. You know, and I've talked about this a lot. If you're the person hurting at the moment, and so many of us are with this facade of, you know, I'm doing fine, then we need to understand that for people to be able to help us, we have to be able to ask for help. But for everyone else who's doing okay, you don't shame the mental health element. You become the beacon of light. You become the solution. So if you are there present with your crew and making sure oh there's something different with with so and so they're not normally like this then go deeper take them aside you know away from from everyone else and and you know ask are you okay no no no. are you really okay well let me let me tell you about something that happened to me recently where i wasn't okay and open those doors and be vulnerable and be there for the people that need you i agree 100 percent. and for me that when I say it was pivotal, I sort of slowly started coming back out of that hole of darkness. So that person that used to love to go to conferences and meet people and learn that had stopped in, in the fall of that year. So it would be October of, of 2012. Um, I signed up for a course and, and met just an, an outstanding instructor that I just loved who kind of sort of brought even more of that beacon of hope to me. And, and I just started signing up for courses and reeducating myself with a vengeance and pursuing more certifications and getting more involved. And it just sort of steamrolled from there. But I just think I needed that one moment that, what did they say? It takes one moment to change your life forever. And I think it was that moment. Yeah. And they can change it for the better or the worse. That's what's sad. It is right. You know, what is it? It's your one phone call, one diagnosis, and one bad decision away from an entirely different life. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about that presentation. Expand on that a little bit. You, who was the, the person talking about peer support? Um, so... Uh, so actually, that was a, a fitness presentation, but we can actually fast forward to uh, the peer support that was brought into our department and these dates. So now that I'm enjoying my life and engaged and loving it, I'm not enduring it anymore. The years are like smearing together and I can't keep anything straight. But I think it was three years ago now that we had um, a presentation from the Illinois Firefighter Peer Support Network. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what peer support meant. But what I did know is that the person that was presenting was someone that I knew and liked from a a neighboring department. And his name was Matt Olson. And he started the peer support network because of the darkness that he experienced with the fire service and, you know, the alcoholism and the depression and all of those things. And he came to us and he told his story and I took 
I, I tell this the same way every time I took my last breath when he said his first word and I didn't breathe again until he was done. It was absolutely life-changing to realize that what I was going through, although not normal, was common. And the fact that there was definitely hope and there was hope for other people and truly you don't have to go through this because you don't have to suffer alone. And the fact that he was educating us made an awful lot of light bulbs go off for me. Yeah, well, I think that's that's a great way of putting it. It's not normal, but it is common. And I think that's a beautiful analogy is, you know, when when you look at the tapestry of all the associated professions, corrections, dispatch, I mean, you know, forensics, you know, whatever it is, there is that common denominator. And I've been so lucky to get a very diverse group of people on this show to illustrate that very point. But, you know, it's not normal the same way as a back injury isn't normal. But the, 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 uh, I guess the good news, I'm, I'm searching for the right word, um, is that if you address it and if you have the right group and you make that journey through to the other side, you are more resilient. The same way as if you address whatever muscular imbalances cause the back injury, you're actually going to be a more resilient athlete on the other side as well. I, I agree 100%. And I think that I think that the greatest thing that I am able to do at this point is that my, through the course of me starting my business and me getting contracts with other departments and um, me doing speaking engagements, my department has finally kind of figured out, huh, I think she must know what she's talking about. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, one of my greatest honors is that I am allowed on the very first day of everyone's employment, they come in, they have their swearing in ceremony, they take their pictures. They talk to the human resources lady and they get their insurance squared away and their 457s. And then I get to talk to them and I tell them, uh, I tell them my story and I tell them the statistics of suicide and depression in the fire service. And I tell them that there is hope and I tell them how very important it is to sleep and eat well and move your bodies. And, and it's amazing because their faces, they're so shocked because they have no idea. They have no idea what's coming. But the great thing is that these same new hires are contacting me months and years later to ask questions or, or get resources or let me know what's going on and, and, or tell me that what I said helped them. So to me, that's, that's probably the greatest thing I've ever done, maybe in my life. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Well, well, with that pivotal point, though, what were some of the changes, counseling, you know, therapies, whatever you found that worked for you on your own personal mental healing journey? It's it's really funny, James. I never and I keep saying that I am going to, but I never got formal counseling for me. Just the realization of what was going on and getting a handle on my behavior and sort of reapplying myself to always I was emphasizing my sleep and my nutrition and my training I was always doing that but sort of redoubling my efforts um, that just absolutely for me was it was the key just the awareness just knowing 
Well, we started talking before, or we were talking before we started recording. Um, and there's a kind of parallel between what you and I have been through, whereas we didn't actually end up, you know, with the actual suicide ideation, um, but definitely went down to some very dark places. And I always attribute the reason why I wasn't all the way to the bottom, aside from being very fortunate with my childhood and had some trauma, but, you know, the trauma occurred within a pretty stable family structure, but was a concept of, again, I, my journey was also through exercise physiology and sports science. So I had this this good foundation of wellness information. And I think that understanding fitness, nutrition, you know, men, uh, mindfulness, um, you know, mobility, all these things. Even when I got hurt, I was in, they were like, okay, here we go. Surgery and meds. I was like, nah, fuck that. <laughs> I know better than that. You're an idiot. Well, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to reinvent this. But the same, the same with the, the mental side. Even though, I mean, some of the darkest times when I was in, in medic school and, you know, just working my ass off being a single father, there was still that understanding of why I was so fucking depressed. And therefore it empowered me to, you know, to work through it. What, uh, how much do you attribute that element of your life to, you know, this kind of this this mental journey that you went went through as far as understanding the wellness and taking care of your body and and eating correctly and understanding your sleep, um, giving you at least a little bit more foundation than some of the the brothers and sisters that we have that have either been very close or you know worse still actually taken their own lives. I think. I, I would give it 100% credit. I, James, I would never say, I would never advise people against counseling. No way. I think everyone should have counseling. I just didn't happen to use that avenue because I had all of the other pieces in place. But, you know, it's it's funny. It's incredible to me the number of people that will come up to me and say, oh my God, I'm so tired. I need to go get my thyroid checked what your fucking thyroid you slept three hours the last seven days how about we start there so you know the 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 research is so strong that correlates sleep and mental health nutrition and mental health mindfulness and training the research is super strong and so if you have all four of those pieces in place you still may have some struggles you absolutely may but I think that your struggles are going to be lightened by hundreds, hundredfold. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about not doing counseling. What I found personally is when you, you know, some of those avenues that we just talked about, and let's take the fitness element, for example, whether it's a spin class or step or CrossFit or, you know, you frequently go to Spartan races, whatever it is, you have that tribe. And I, I just did a, the very first Spartan they did post-COVID. Um, it was a couple of months ago now, but when, uh ran actually really walked with operation enduring warrior um earl granville and some other amazing wounded warriors and so you're talking about a 5k race that you're going over obstacles and you know talking to people so by the time we were done that absolutely is a counseling session so just because it's not officially with a licensed counselor doesn't mean at the end of your surf session or ruck or whatever you've chosen to do that you haven't had pretty much exactly the same experience with that environment as well I am in 100% agreement with you. I think that, you know, we are, I think it's Jim Rohn that said we're the average of the five people we hang around with the most. And so if you yourself 
are a miserable F, you're going to hang around with the same type of people. But once you have that ability to have the gratitude and the positivity in your life, that's what you're going to attract to your life. And and those are the wonderful conversations that you're going to be able to have while you do those awesome races. Absolutely. Well, speaking of being surrounded by amazing people, um, tell me about your journey through NSCA and especially TSAC, because of all the events I've ever been to, TSAC is, I think, by far the best conference and, and also the source of some great guests I've had on the show, too. Yes, you are correct. Um, so I've been certified as a uh, certified strength and conditioning specialist for quite a number of years. But uh, a few years ago, I decided, you know what, first of all, even if my department doesn't want me to train them and to lecture to them, there are thousands of other departments. So I'm going to specialize in those. And I convinced myself that I quote unquote needed the TSAC certification and actually it was just a justification to go get another certification. But, um, I went ahead and got that certification and then quickly decided, Hey, I should go to this conference. And so the very first one I went to was in 2014. Were you at that one, James San Diego, I believe. No, I've only been to the ones so far. I'm going to keep going to them, but I've only been to the ones that were in Orlando. Okay. So I went to the one in San Diego and And I was still kind of in that dark, introverted place. And so I sort of, you wouldn't have met me if you had been there because I pretty much scooted into the lecture halls and then ran back to my room and, you know, didn't do anything social. I'm very different now. But so I I went to that conference and one of the things I am so grateful for at that conference was I wandered into George Carvajal's session. And as you know, he is one of the most amazing people on the planet. And I, uh, I practiced brave after the session and I went and talked to George and asked him some questions. And because he is so kind, he invited me to, you know, keep in touch and follow up with questions. And, and so I actually did, and we've become very good friends, but through sort of that relationship with George and that interest in that tactical training, I've gone to most of the conferences and, um, let's see, in 2018, I decided, screw it, I'm gonna apply to present, I have something to say. And so I got chosen to present in 2019. And then I was super, super happy to be asked to come in November to N- uh, November of 2019 to NSCA headquarters, and help them revamp the TSAC practitioner course as their firefighter subject matter expert. So I've gotten really involved with uh, with TSAC for sure. And then um, I, I got asked kind of last minute to fill in for the online version this year. So it, NSCA, hands down, one of the best organizations out there in the tactical division. Those, those people are just amazing. I love them. Beautiful, yeah. So tell me about, you know, what, what is your... Uh, um, uh, perception of TSAC specifically because I, I had my CPT NSCP, NSCA I was getting ready to do my CSCS and actually it got to a point where I realized I really wasn't going to use it in, in any particular function so I didn't end up taking the test um, but the TSAC again having gone through the whole CSCS and then seeing the TSAC um, the, the the quality of knowledge the quality of coaching um, 
I was extremely impressed. I think it is it should be the kind of gold standard for for that um, level of training in the fire service. But with you having worked in spin and step and all these other ones, explain to me why TSEC is is you know resonating with you as well. Well, the first thing I have to be super honest with you, if you have your CSCS, you do not need your TSAC, even if you're going to work in tactical, because um, as Nate Palin would explain it, the TSAC is more for the boots on the ground person that probably has less of an exercise physiology background. So more like the the run of the mill military or police or fire personnel that are going to train their own. So maybe more on the level of the ACE peer fitness trainer, sort of, I, I prefer the TSAC by a hundred fold to the ACE uh, peer fitness trainer, but that's kind of the, um, the explanation that I got that said, I'm super glad that I took it cause it was, was really, really interesting, but I think it doesn't matter, James, what avenue you go with in your department as long as you have the buy-in from the department. So you could have the best certified strength and conditioning coach on the planet working at your department. But if your department isn't giving the personnel time or equipment or accountability, it's going to be a disaster regardless of what you have. But I do, I love so much the level of coaching that they teach you in the TSAC practitioner course. I think when you walk out of that course, as opposed to the ACE Peer Fitness Trainer course, I think you're way more set up for success. Yeah. Well, I know for me, again, you know, being immersed, I'd say I wouldn't say I'm an expert by any means, but but well immersed in, you know, the strength and conditioning world, both as from an athletic point of view in martial arts and then the tactical side. Um, I have seen, and, and, you know, I think I saw this really with the peer fitness trainer element as well, almost a disconnect from the actual fire ground, you know, uh, movements. So they, they say, well, this is going to stabilize the shoulder, which then in turn will do this or that. But again, when they start breaking out Swiss balls and bands, I'm like, okay, there's so many basic things that we can use, sandbags, sleds that absolutely mimic what we do but also can address muscle imbalances so that's that's one of the the observations i've had is if you take any class and you can't envision yourself doing those same kind of things on the fire ground you have to question is this the best uh, philosophy for me to take back to my department yeah i think that's a great consideration and and the other thing with the uh, ACE Peer Fitness Trainer, they spend so much time teaching the students how to administer the testing, and they spend so very little time on actual coaching and and what are we going to do with this information. And so I think that's why so many departments get stuck in that data collection vortex. So we do the testing every year, and then we don't hear about it or anything else again until the next year when we do the testing again because we're just checking a box. I think that the um, the NSCA philosophy with the TSAC practitioner or facilitator is it's a way more healthy, balanced approach. Yeah, well, exactly, and that's the, that's the problem like we mentioned earlier about justification, um, you know, and and not looking at other um, professions and just doing an apples to 
apples to crab apples comparison or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> you know, you shouldn't have to, oh, we need to see studies to see if exercise is going to reduce injury or to see if another shift will actually improve mental health. You, you have to be a complete idiot to think that it wouldn't. So the fact that you even are asking for, you know, more research is we should probably take your badge off and let someone else lead the department because that's the most fucking ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So stop justifying and asking for stats and studies and peer reviewed and all this bullshit. Yes, an exercise routine is going to make your department healthier. It's going to make it more efficient and is going to have nothing but positive um, effects. So as you said, stop worrying about testing and actually implement a frequent exercise routine, mobility routine, whatever it is, so that you can take that money and actually make your department better rather than try and justify some ridiculous statistic. Well, and, and the other thing is that so many people, not just departments, but people get so caught up in the minutia. So they're losing the forest for the trees. Uh, Dan John said it right. He said, my 80-year-old grandma needs to push, pull, hinge, squat, and carry heavy stuff. How about my football lineman? Push, pull, squat, hinge, carry heavy stuff. Firefighters, same thing. Our exercise programming should be more the same for everyone than it is different. Yeah, we do have some special limitations and special snowflakes that need special exercises. But for the most part, push, pull, hinge, squat, carry heavy stuff. End of story. Absolutely. Well, I want to kind of explore, you know, what your training looks like. So I know that you um, are certified in FMS and it's something that I haven't really talked about very much. So describe to me how you screen your firefighters. Well, the, the functional movement screen is, is a screen. We have to remember that. So it's not so much a test, but a screen for movement dysfunction. And there is some literature out there that says if you score, so a perfect score would be a 21. And, you know, if you get any zeros, meaning if you have pain in any of the movements, um, you know, that would be a failed test. But there's literature out there that says less than 14 score puts you at risk for injury. Eh, I don't know if I so much agree with that. And I also don't know if you need to do every single aspect of the functional movement screen, but I definitely screen all of my firefighters with the overhead squat because we learn a lot about ankle mobility, shoulder mobility, hip mobility from the overhead squat. And then um, the shoulder mobility movement. And then from there, if I can't figure out kind of what's going on with them, I'll do the entire functional movement screen. But I think it's great because we move so shitty, James. We move like garbage. And it's primarily from our lifestyles and our uniform slash PPE. So when you think about it, your ankles should move freely, but we lock them into boots all day. Your hips should move freely, but we staple those suckers into gear and then put an air pack on them. And then our thoracic spine should move freely and we have that air pack on it. So we're compounding our sedentary sitting lifestyles with these sort of locks on our joints that create issues. And the problem is when you don't have free movement or mobility at a joint, and then you go ahead and load that movement pattern, that's where we start to see issues. And so if I've got a guy that can't overhead squat on the FMS, but wants to snatch, 
that's a recipe for disaster. He can't get his arms up above his head unloaded and we're going to load him up with a heavy bar and snap him into position. Recipe for disaster. So I use that functional movement screen in conjunction with a couple of other tests to sort of give um, better programming and better correction for their movements. Beautiful. I'm so glad you said that about overhead squat because that's what I've noticed when I coach as well. That again, I'm not a you know, Ollie expert by any means whatsoever. I'm actually not a great lifter myself either. But that particular movement I love when it's light because, I mean, you, you hit on the nail on the head. I know people that can only, you know, myself included, only overhead squat X amount. But then they're wondering why they can't throw more over the head. Like you literally can't a controlled, you know, slowly descend with that weight and you're expecting to just drop under it and catch it. Um, but it is such a great diagnostic tool with an empty barbell, with a PVC pipe, whatever it is that you use to see like how far down can people go? Do they collapse? Do they, you know, are they able to hold that weight, you know, without shrugging their shoulders, all these different cues so, yeah, I mean, I think if you had one exercise to diagnose overall strength, mobility, and symmetry, the overhead squat is amazing. Yeah, I think it's great. And it's also the way I explain it to my people is that your greatest propensity for injury is in that area where between active range of motion and passive range of motion. So meaning, let's say I've got you on the ground on your back, James, and I ask you to bring your right leg up as high as you can, like a hamstring stretch without touching your leg. And if you can get that leg up to mm, 75 degrees, and then I can come and gently press you and you can get it to 95 degrees passively, well, that that, that distance between the 70 and the 95, you don't have active control of that range. And so that's the range of motion where you're more likely to get injured. So let's then transfer that to the shoulder. You're only able to get into shoulder flexion to 75 degrees, but now we load you up into a snatch and now you're at 90 or straight up above your head. That point, th those degrees that you don't have control of, that's where you're going to get injured. Yeah, very, very interesting. And you mentioned the boots as well. And I had um, uh, a podiatrist from Boston on. Um, and, you know, I'm a huge advocate for barefoot anything because I've watched my feet slowly unfurl back from 15 years in work boots to, to normal again. But, you know, you, you look at the, the disconnection from the floor, um, you know, with the foot. You look at the, the raised heel and the effect on the knees and the hips and the back and the neck. Um, you know, the complete lack of ability to, to, to use the muscles in the, in the feet because of that. On top of the fact that they're sweating and getting all nasty and full of fungus <laughs> and everything. Um, so one of the things that I've kind of argued, you know, um, advocated for is a different type of shoe. And one of the sponsors, I'll give a shameless pug, uh, 511, they have an amazing thing called the Norris sneaker and they got some other much lighter footwear as well. But, I don't think that when we run our regular calls, which let's be honest, 90% are EMS, that you should be running around in boots that were made to, you know, fight the enemy in, in Germany in World War II. <laughs> Even the military don't wear those shoes anymore. So the fact that we have this, this uh, again, kind of like the, 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 the leather fire helmet, people hate talking about that, but the reality is that's old, old technology. These boots are destroying the human body and and for us to get a much more lightweight maybe even very very 
low profile shoe that we can run all our regular calls and if there's any IDLH you have to go respond on a building site in a car accident you put your bunker gear on anyway but understanding foot health and how much damage those boots are doing to us I think is another area that we really need to address well and that's a genius statement and I'm going to take it one step further they don't make female shoes for the most part and so People say, well, you know, it's just, it's a smaller, no, the female foot is not the same as the male foot. So I've been 16 years in male boots, which are causing me issues. Yeah, well, exactly. Actually, 5'11", just again, I'm not harping on them, but they, I think, were one of the first companies to actually realize that uniforms needed to be of different sex as well. Imagine that. So, you know, they, they completely did their, their line where, um, you know, they have a complete female range of all their uniforms. And I actually, they're so open to the actual people that they serve, giving them input that I will, I will let them know about the male female because they're probably fascinated to, to hear about that and maybe, maybe start steering that direction next. Yeah, absolutely. And my administration was like, well, no, 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 they have females. I'm like, no, it's just a smaller male size. It, it's like talking to a wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm very familiar with that. <laughs> All right. Well, then, so that's the kind of, you know, the, the mobility side just for a moment. Um, what are some of the overall, the, the the health and fitness challenges that you're seeing? I mean, here you are with a very, you know, very, very strong, um, both academic and hands-on um, strength and conditioning background, what are some of the common denominators you're seeing in our profession as a whole as far as either either lack of fitness or you know potential injury markers? Oh, that's a hard one. Okay. And, and this is an unpopular statement, but I'm okay with saying unpopular statements because I can now have conflict with people and then talk it through and resolve it. You're in the right so, place to talk about it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we, the biggest thing facing us right now is that we are hiring overweight and obese people. They are starting their career overweight. And as, as you know, no one or Almost no one gets more fit throughout their tenure in the fire service. Almost everyone becomes less fit. And so I think that we need to reexamine our hiring protocols. And that is a very unpopular statement, but I, I feel strongly about that. In terms of mobility, I am seeing unparalleled cases of elbow tendonitis. And so I, I haven't put my finger on it yet. Why James, but I think it's due because the elbow, like the knee, the knee is the slave to the hip and the foot. The elbow is the slave to the shoulder and the wrist. And so I think that these elbow tendonitis cases are coming from poor shoulder or wrist mobility. And so I know your next question is going to be, how are you addressing that? How are you addressing that? How am I addressing that? It's twofold. <laughs> and and this is hard with firefighters because you know they don't like to look stupid. Even if they trust you, they hate looking stupid. But I'm addressing it with two different things. The first one is, are you familiar with reflexive performance reset? I am not. Okay, so this is a Cal Dietz, Chris Corfist, JL Holdsworth 
sort of creation. Um, they, I think it's called, the actual company is called Reflexive Performance Reset. And it's basically based on trigger points, sort of. So more or less, you're sort of breathing and stimulating these trigger points, quote unquote, um, and there's a certain order you do it in. And in theory, by doing this reflexive performance reset, you're sort of resetting your body. So for example, many people have lower back pain because they're using their back extensors instead of their, their glutes for hip extension. So the reflexive performance reset helps sort of reset the order of firing, if you will. The problem is it looks kind of silly because you're like rubbing on your chest and then across your flanks and so on and so forth. But I just tell them it looks like voodoo, feels like bullshit, do it anyway. So reflexive performance reset followed by functional range conditioning, which is kind of the brainchild of Dr. Androspina, who is, he's a chiropractor, he's from Canada, but basically, um, Functional range conditioning is taking all of your joints through their largest pain-free range of motion as sort of a self-assessment and then going back and doing isometric progressive and regressive contractions to sort of open up ranges of motion. So if we go back to the example of where I had you laying on your back, James, and you showed me you could get your leg to 75 degrees before your hamstrings cramped on you and then I pushed you gently to 95 degrees the uh, um, functional range conditioning would be where I would put you in a doorway and you would put your leg up as high as you can until you feel a good healthy stretch. You would stretch for maybe 30 seconds to a minute and then you would press your heel into the doorway for 15 seconds and then you would pull your leg back as far as you could of your own accord for 15 seconds and what you're gonna notice is that you're able to open up more range of motion. So coupling these two things together, the reflexive performance reset and the functional range conditioning, magic. And so that's that almost like a PNF then. Yes, it's, it's very much like PNF. But most people, when you talk about PNF, they can think of like two stretches to do it with. The um, functional range conditioning is literally every joint in your body, both internal external rotation flexion extension all of it it's amazing there's tons of videos on youtube but check it out it's really great beautiful and i haven't heard of either of those two so you're going to send me down some more rabbit holes ah i love it thank you so much well well you touched on the obese candidates as well so i want to go back to that because who cares about unpopular if it's actually saving lives you know it's the same with all this this uh, polarity that we're seeing at the moment and nothing's actually being fixed with either of these issues um, but yeah, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot. We call our training in the fire service minimum standards for a reason. That's the bare minimum that you have, whether it's skill wise, whether it's, you know, mental fortitude, all these elements. We're, we're building you up to a point where at the end of the academy, you just, you know, you've just been born. You're still, the, the umbilicus is still attached. So <laughs> now you have to go and learn how to be a grown up and a firefighter and a medic and all these things. Um, and it's, you know, a lifetime's worth of training. But I couldn't agree more. The, the bar gets lower and lower and lower. And to me, if you show up at the fire ground out of shape, that there's no better um, indication that you don't really want to be a firefighter. 
because if you did, you know, you would have to show up the way you'd have to show up. And the fact that we're, you know, dumbing down these physical standards and hiring practices is so dangerous for that individual. Because as you said, this job's only going to break them down. They're only going to get heavier. They're only going to get more mentally taxed. So if they're, you know, a shadow of the potential that they have when they step through the front door, shame on you for allowing them not only for the people that we serve, but also their own health as well. So I couldn't agree more. That bar has to be set. And I've witnessed it. I've seen the best and the worst in my career. And the best had people that are still in phenomenal shape now the men and women in Anaheim. Um, and then, you know, the worst is, I'm not even going to mention the department's name, but you don't want your family to be rescued by them, especially if they're anything higher than about two stories. You know what I mean? So the reality is glaring. This is so dangerous for the, 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 the potential of not saving someone because you're out of condition. And then it's also so dangerous to allow that person the profession because it's probably going to kill them. Well, the, the simple fact of the matter is that the biggest predictor of injury is overweight and obesity. And the second biggest predictor of injury is a previous injury. So if you've hurt your knee before, you're probably going to hurt it again. But knowing that the greatest predictor of injury is obesity or overweight, it, it doesn't follow to me. It doesn't track. Why are we hiring people in that condition? Yeah. And it's not prejudice. Because you set the same bar. I had to work my ass off being, you know, built like a coat hanger to be <laughs> as strong, you know, strong enough to be. I mean, I'm serious. I had to work so hard to be strong enough to be a firefighter. So the, I'm not a mesomorph by any means. I'm a ectomorph. Is that right, Skinny? Um, so, you know, I wasn't the, the natural born athlete. No way, shape or form. So you set the bar there for a reason. And if someone's not willing to do it, whether they're not willing to be strong enough, whether they're not be willing to lose the weight, whatever it is, then beautiful. There are so many other industries out there, but one where lives depend on you is not the one for you. No, I would recommend a, a desk job for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, and then hopefully a good nutritionist and everything. And if you are overweight as a candidate and you want to be a firefighter, beautiful. Let that be the motivator that gets you in the best shape of your life. And not just for the CPAT and then go back and and go back to your old habits. I think that that's one of the things with our personalities, James, is that we're so extreme that many firefighters are either all on or all off. So they're either 100% on the wagon, some extreme diet, some extreme workout program, supplements, all of it, or they're nothing, if I could just get them to have sort of a, again, that pendulum in the middle, moderate activity, moderate nutrition, I think that we would all be so far ahead. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about the entry test. So again, now you're talking of a career of, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it ends up looking like. What is your philosophy on annual fitness testing? Okay, so I think it's amazing and I think we should do it. Having said that, my department doesn't do it, nor do I know any departments locally that do it. Um, there is a company, or at least there used to be a company in Indianapolis called Public Safety Medical. I do believe they've either gone out of business or been bought out. But Public Safety Medical actually will come in and work with you to design your own fitness test 
They'll take a look once you've designed it. They'll validate it. Then they'll take a look at all of your people running through it. They'll give you the official stats. They'll give you the bell curve. Then they allow you to pick what you're going to say is your passing score. And then you have like a year to practice before you actually do the test. And it's, again, validated and agreed upon by all parties. And I think things like that are amazing. I think they're useful. Those, the consumption tests that I, that I believe that we spoke about, um, offline, they just, they don't make sense because no one knows what you're looking for. No one knows what passing is. No one knows what failing is. So I believe that yearly fitness testing is critical. I just don't think it's happening. Yeah, no, and I agree. And there's so many, like you said, there's so many groups out there that have a version of. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I know um, the CPAT that I've done, I just redid it to to almost get hired for Gainesville here. And then right at the last minute, I started getting sponsorship and was was financially able to support my family with this podcast, which is amazing. But, you know, firstly, I think it was like, I forget what it was now, but it was either side of seven minutes. Um and so everyone doing to and CPA out there, if you high five because you got 10 minutes and 19 seconds, I would think about training a little bit harder and doing it again. Just <laughs> I want to put that out there too. If a 46 year old man can, <laughs> can get lower than that, then you should too. But the iPad is what they had at Orange County. And I, sadly, they have completely dismantled their wellness department at the moment. They've closed down the fitness facility. They've stopped their annual testing, the iPad. So, you know, shame on the current administration. I want to make that very clear. But that's another tool. We did it every year. It wasn't punitive at that point. I think that's definitely the next step. But it was fire ground tasks. It was, you know, stairs. It was, you know, carrying equipment, doing a very, very super simple right-hand search. Um, you know, forcible entry props. So these are all things that if you're on the, the, the front line that you're going to expect, you know, be expected to do. It wasn't extremely hard. You know, you can set that parameter where you're not, you know, trying to, trying to just end up with Olympic athletes in your department because you're going to have none. But at the same <laughs> time, you're holding that standard. And that's, that's the, what's so sad. Like you said, I don't know of anyone that has an annual fitness test, but I know that all the military do. So again, this whole research thing, if all the other tactical professions do have an annual fitness test, I'm going to say, oh, I know the, the police department struggle with the same issue. Mm, yes. Then how as first responders have we allowed, you know, our people to, to stray away from this? When we step in, the next hiring class that needs to be put in, like you are the fittest now. So we're not going to let you slip. We're going to keep encouraging you to maintain the standard. And it's going to be fire ground specific. We're not asking anything crazy of you. And we're going to give you the tools as well to uh, to for you to succeed we're going to have you know coaching in the department we're going to supply a good gym so you'll be able to work out and therefore this test is going to be nothing but just you know an annual thing that you go through and then you have a little friendly competition with your friends yeah that's precisely it but it just it doesn't happen no so so let me flip it around then so how do we change that culture in the fire service i think we need to put because right now, the the fire service administration is saying you need to be fit for the job. We built you a gym. End of story. I think that they need to realize that you're not going to recruit a quarterback for a football team and say, 
good luck. We recruited you. Um, good luck staying in shape. They provide resources. And so I think that the fire service and law enforcement needs to start providing resources, not just a gym. They need to provide dedicated time. They need to have on staff someone who is capable of doing assessments, basic injury screening, mental health, nutrition. Most people don't need a dietitian unless they have a disease. They don't need a dietitian. They need a nutrition coach who can teach them how to eat more properly. But the fire service is going to say, whoa, 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 this is going to cost money. But here's the thing. If they look at return on investment, they're going to get an amazing return on investment. So I just learned this recently. In things health and wellness based, a return on investment of three to one is amazing. San Antonio Fire hired their own athletic trainer. In her first year of working for San Antonio Fire, she did six to one return on investment. And they just did, are working on a study publishing a paper where it's closer to 10 to one. So the fire service, to answer your question, needs to put their money where their mouth is and believe a little bit on their return on investment. We'll stay on that subject. What is your weekly shift pattern? Are you 42, 48, 56? Uh, we are on 24 off 48. So what is that? 56. No, do you have Kelly days or no? We do. So we're 99 hours per pay period. Okay. With yeah. our Kelly days. So speaking of return of investment, knowing what you know about sleep, if the 42 hour work week became the gold standard, so 24, 72, what do you think would be the health impact of that? I think we have to press pause and add a comma to that sentence. If the firefighters actually use that time for rest and rejuvenation and not a second part-time job, I think that it would be an amazing return on investment. But the problem is, and I tell this to all of my firefighters, the department has responsibility, but so do you. And so if you are working every minute that you're not working here, or if you're taking overtime shifts every pay period, you're doing this to yourself too. Yeah, I know that's what I talk about a lot with the two-pronged attack, but uh, that is a kickback I get from some people when I talk about this. And my, especially with the overtime side, and my thing is, well, you solve overtime by staffing your department properly. So that's that's null and void. You know, if you actually have the right people, overtime is occasional. You know, and then right. if you got a twenty-four seventy-two, one shift every so often is not going to destroy you, especially if you manage to put it in the middle of those two days as well. Um, the other thing I talk about is, you know, I'm not opposed to, I mean, you absolutely have to have rest and recovery, but, you know, say you hang drywall or whatever it is um, during a nine to five style day on, on you know, one or, or two of your days off, whatever, that's fine too. It's exercise, you know, you're, you're right. you know, around people, but if you're taking nighttime ER shifts or, you know, like more, more importantly, you're drinking every night, then yeah, that's the ownership side. You got to understand your sleep hygiene. You got to have that rest and recovery. But I think, you know, until the fire service is paid where these men and women don't have to have a second job, because um, that's the other side of the coin, most of people have to. And that's disgusting. That shouldn't be the case. 
But if you are going to work, then work during the day and go home and unwind and, and sleep in your own bed and get a really good night's sleep. And, and that way you will be recharged for the next shift. I, I definitely agree with that for sure. Brilliant. All right. Well, then one area I want to touch on and then we'll talk about fire rescue fitness. Um, are you still good for time, by the way? I know we've kind of gone past the 90 minutes. I am great. Beautiful. All right. Well, then um, the organizational stress thing, and I'm asking you this because you'd already you know, touched on on some areas that we can improve on. I don't want to automatically ask anyone because they're you know, a specific gender or orientation or skin color or whatever. Oh, well, you must have experience with this because that in itself is, is kind of prejudice. But I do want to open the door for you know, experiences that people have um, as far as, you know, the organizational stress side, whether it's bullying, whether it's, you know, we've already talked about the frustration of trying to make a positive difference. But you'd mentioned about the actual stations being designed now for different genders. So can I, if you want to expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to reiterate from the point before, um, most of the problems getting along that I had were due to my actual, my perception of the problems as well as my inability to, to have conflict resolution. So I think if I had been a lot more emotionally mature when I started the job, my, my path would have been a lot smoother, but there have definitely, definitely been some, some challenges. When I got hired, I got hired with a very large group well, large for us of 10 people. And one of the stations was under construction when I got hired. And so it basically had one bathroom where the showers were in there too. And so more or less for my first year on the job, instead of shipping me out to a station that had a female locker room or at least a second bathroom, they kept me at the headquarters station where I was basically, you know, knock on the door and hope someone wasn't in there. And then at night, there's nowhere for me to change clothes because it's a common bunk area. And so I'm, you know, sleeping in my clothes and going on a call, putting on my bunker gear, coming back, laying down with my clothes on. I mean, at the time, it felt icky to me. But looking back, that's entirely unacceptable, especially when you have at least one other station that that I could have been at. So that was a little bit of a rocky start. And you would think, well, you know, that that stuff all got resolved throughout the years. But to be honest, we still have stations where although there is a second bathroom that has a shower, it's considered the public bathroom. So at the station where I'm assigned right now, they just took down my mirror and installed a baby changing station to be uh, compliant with, I believe it's ADA, um, in the public bathroom, which is my bathroom. So that's just, it's frustrating, James. And there's a station where I may end up getting assigned next year that, that has a hall bathroom, a very small public hall bathroom, but no shower to speak of. So I'll be having to share the shower with, with the the men on the crew, which of course we'll work it out. It'll be fine, but it's 2020. We shouldn't be having these issues anymore. So that to me has been difficult during my career. And then, you know, the public is very ignorant and I don't think they mean to be assholes, but they say some awful things, you know, and you know, what are you doing on the fire truck? You should be making the sandwiches and 
is a bring your wife to work day when I'm getting off the truck and, you know, we're walking into the grocery store and, oh, I know who's cooking today. It's just, it's, it's ignorant. And it's the old me probably would have blown up and gotten fired for punching a civilian. But luckily the new me just pretends like I didn't hear them and they keep saying it. And then they look stupid because they said the same thing three times to a brick wall. But <laughs> other than that, I, I don't have an awful lot of complaints. There's always the, you know, typical, um, rough, edges between administration and and the line personnel but overall I think that I've had a pretty successful career and about three and a half more years to go and then I'm gonna bounce yeah no it's funny with the with the public perception one of the ones that used to grate me was what are we buying for you today oh I hate that I always wanted to say I don't know what's what's your mom cooking (laughs) well I used to try to educate them well actually we put and then I just I just look at them and I smile and I turn away and the wearing the masks now is really helpful because people can't see my actual expression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like you said, most it's like with the frequent flyers, we get it. We get a skewed perspective. Like so many, so many people out there have no idea how to manage their own lives. And, you know, these people keep calling 911. It's bullshit. But the reality is we don't see most of the normal people because they don't call 911 unless it really is an emergency. So we get a very skewed perspective. And the same with, you know, with those people, the squeaky wheels is exactly what we're seeing now. You know, they're always chirping. Everyone else is smiling, saying thank you, whatever it is. But every so often you get that douchebag that, you know, wasn't (laughs) held enough as a child, you know, so show me on the bear where they hurt you. Exactly. So, all right. Well, I wanted, I just remembered there's one other area I wanted to talk about because I, I heard you mention it and I want to give a shout out to the Fire Inside podcast. That's where I heard, you know, your interviews before and it was excellent. And you touched on um, the opiate epidemic early in your career. And I know the Midwest is known for, for that crisis. So over your whole career, what's your been your experience with that? You know, it's hit and miss. When we first started, oh my gosh, they were daily, if not more than one a day these overdoses and a lot of deaths. And then we had sort of like a, a lull. And then a few years ago, we had another resurgence. Um, I believe that it was uh, heroin laced with fentanyl. So we were getting a lot of deaths from that. And now, especially with the COVID, since that started, it seems like we're getting a lot, a lot of overdoses again. So, you know what, it's, it's, it's really sad. And it's primarily... I think it's, um, I shouldn't say primarily, but sometimes I think it's due to these people that are injured, they are hurt, they're prescribed painkillers that eventually either stop working for them or they can't get them anymore and they're hooked. So I think it's a sad, sad reflection on our lives. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, so again, you have this this health and wellness background. Um, my view of the last six months and thank god in florida we just went into phase three so we're slowly come out of this now um but has been that we completely missed the point that that covid held this mirror up to how unhealthy our nation is and that's why we're losing so many people and it held up to me through my eyes held up the mirror that we're destroying our first responders and therefore they're much more vulnerable and that's why we've lost so many of them and it's it's heartbreaking. But we've missed an opportunity to actually address health issues in this country. And the moment that's even discussed, oh, but this 22-year-old in Wisconsin died and he had 
you know, not talking about the other, you know, thousands that died that did have pre-existing conditions. So what has been your view of the last six months coming from, you know, the, the wellness history that you have? Yeah, I, I, I agree. We have entirely missed the boat, but this is what we do in America. We ask for the easy solution. You know, I'm, I'm fat and I'm tired and I'm overweight. Give me a pill instead of start working out consistently, start with five minutes a day, build from there, you know, get the healthy habits going. I think we've entirely missed the boat. And the other thing that I'm really afraid of is I feel like we have dehumanized each other to the point where I don't even know how we're going to interact once we take these masks off. It's amazing. People, people will literally jump back or run away or whatever in, in the store if they feel like you're getting too close. And it's just, it's mind boggling to me. I'm, I'm so over it, James. I'm so tired of it. Yeah. Well, I'm actually booking a cruise in November. The Royal Caribbean just opened up and I'm going to be on one of the first ones because, you know, for me, that's it. We need that back. We did everything we were asked. You know, we waited for the second wave that never fucking came, you know, and good. I do not want to have, you know, a, a, a surge in deaths, but the, the numbers that we're seeing now are exactly the numbers that Kirk Parsley and Jeff Nichols and all these other people, Tim Kennedy, that we talked about at the beginning of this pandemic. And it's not pat on the back, we were right. It's just when you have a semblance of understanding of basic, basic science, you're like, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. These numbers you're telling us, how can you have these statistics when you only your only sample size of people that have walked into your ER with breathing difficulties? So now we're seeing this, I cannot, you know, we have to go back. And like you said, we have to now be head on a swivel at the ripple effect, the mental health issues, the addiction issues that were going to come from this, the homelessness, you know, the financial destruction. So no, you don't want to be licking your, you know, your 97-year-old grandma right now if you've got a cold. <laughs> but aside from that, yeah, we need to get back to normality because that that connection, that tribal element of the human experience has to be restored. Yeah, I'm, you know, just now. So what is this end of September? My department is starting now to talk about making us wear masks in the station. Up to this point, we have not. But now they're talking about it. I'm I'm not happy about that. That's crazy. Absolutely. Crazy. Yes, it is. Yeah, well, I'll send you a picture from the cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, then, uh, so let's talk about fire rescue fitness. So tell me, you know, why you started that. Um, and then, you know, you were talking about even rebranding. If you have any ideas, we could put that out as well. Yes. So when you are a business, any type of business, you need to know who your end consumer is and your end consumer can't be everyone. And in the fitness industry, we make this mistake all of the time. And when I built my home gym and then I remodeled my home gym, I was having clients from all walks of life, uh, everyone from semi-pro athletes to uh, children, dancers to figure competitors. I was doing it all. And I just, I started to realize like, I don't, not only do I not want to do it all, I have a special skill set. I have a special understanding of a very special population who needs me. And so little by little, I started not renewing contracts with those individuals. Uh, I'll call them 
uh, general population individuals. And I started amping up my, my reach to firefighters. So I started writing articles and blogs and things like that and presenting and pursuing contracts with fire departments. I don't really work with individuals. I really only work with fire departments and I do anything from their entire health and wellness to a few lectures here and there to a one-off come in and, and do a class, kind of whatever they need. But I have completely retired from training the general population and I only work for firefighters with firefighters through fire rescue fitness. And so it's uh, fire rescue fitness, although I love the name, I love the logo, um, it doesn't really represent what I do because I really feel like I'm more of a wellness person and a sort of a multi-approach person. So the mental health and the nutrition and the mindfulness training, as well as the fitness, which is also important. So I'm not ready to unveil it yet, but I'm working with a trademark attorney to uh, trademark a new name, a new logo, and possibly look at eventually, once I retire, being able to franchise out my programming and my systems and all of that stuff to be able to help a lot more people. Excellent. So for right now, though, um, tell me the the web address, because I know there are a lot of companies out there with similar uh, names. So let's make sure they know which one is you. So um, mine is a little play on words. Instead of spelling out fire and rescue, it is www.fire, F-I-R-E, the letter S as in Sam, the letter Q as in Queen, fitness. So fire rescue fitness when you say it all together. Brilliant. All right. And then right now, so what, what kind of um, programs do you offer these departments? I know you kind of touched on it before, but if, if someone reaches out to you right now, what's the kind of gamut that you can, can supply? The first thing that I always do with the department is a needs analysis. So kind of find out where they're coming from. And generally, they're all coming from the same spot. People are getting hurt. We're spending too much money on workers' comp. People are pissed off. They're not happy. We don't think we have a good workforce, etc. And so once I do that needs analysis, I kind of figure out where they are. If they're married to the AIDS, um, I'm sorry, the WFI, the Wellness and Fitness Initiative, I can do that. I can administer that program because one of the key points of that program is having a professional that is credentialed to the level to be able to supervise something like that. And that's where most departments miss the boat. They get their peer fitness trainers in there, but then they don't have someone with the credentials to supervise them. So if the department's married to that wellness and fitness initiative, I can help with the testing and I, I do exercise uh, prescription or exercise programming. I deliver that primarily via Train Heroic, which is an app. Uh, I do a lot of lecturing on basic hammering home the points of sleep and nutrition and mindfulness and all of those things that they need. We can do uh, lifting techniques like lifting patients and things like that. And kind of, you know, the whole gamut of, of topics that they would want to talk about. One of the things I can do that I don't do very often is I will lead classes. Sometimes they're interested in that. But one of the great things that I offer to all the departments that I contract with is that new person orientation where I meet with them. 
I give them the mental health spiel. I give them the nutrition and the sleep uh, before they even start so that they have that leg up that I didn't have when I started. Beautiful. That sounds like it's such a great, you know, array of different options. So like you said, if someone's set in a specific space at the time in a department, then you can, you know, work with that first and then hopefully expand if they, if they gain trust and, and realize the benefits from, you know, further training. Absolutely. And you know, the COVID has been a real pain in everyone's ass, but it also has given me the awareness that I have the ability to work remotely. Uh, a department contacted me probably two years ago from upstate New York, and they wanted me to work with them. And I just simply said, I, I, I can't. I don't even know what that would look like. But COVID taught me I can. And so um, I'm ready to to branch out a little bit, too. Very cool. Yeah, I think the efficiency piece is, is something I've seen you know, a lot, even uh, Jocko Willink came on and uh, Echelon Front, they've been doing a lot more online. But that's what I found doing podcasting. I mean, I sit here just earlier this week, I was talking to one guy in, um, God, where is he? Uh, oh, they're based in San Francisco. And then another guy was in Norway and we were having a conversation. It was beautiful. Then another guy was in India last week. So the fact that you can do the same thing from home and then when you have your your meetings your face to face now they're actually you know really engaging because you don't see these people all the time so i'm i'm loving seeing the evolution and, and understanding that you can do the same thing in your home office now than you used to drive through you know gridlock traffic to sit at a desk to do the very same thing that you now do in your own house i love it but I'm not ready to give up my conferences. So bring those back on. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That's the thing. So, so pick and choose your, your human experiences that are really worth it. Right. Beautiful. All right. Well, then going to the closing questions. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely different. I love your closing questions. And I had a really hard time narrowing down my answers. So I'm going to give you two books. Perfect. Uh, the first one is The Beauty of a Darker Soul. And I should have written down the author, but I didn't. Josh Mance. It's sitting right in front of me. Oh, love that book. It was recommended to me by one of the people I met at uh, Summer Strong a couple years ago. So good. I keep loaning it out. And then the other one is Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why. And he's coming on the show very soon, Lawrence Gonzalez. Oh, that's awesome. I think I've read that book three times. I love it. Brilliant. I love that. Now, you mentioned Summer Strong. I meant to ask you, um, I love what Bert's doing. I love Sarnex, you know, as a, as a group. Do you use any of their stuff in your gym? I do. Uh, so I use a lot of their smaller equipment. I unfortunately don't have space for one of their big racks unless I did totally custom, which is a little bit cost prohibitive for me so far. But yeah, I love their equipment. I love their philosophy. I love what they're doing with Summer Strong. Summer Strong was my first one was definitely another pivotal moment in my life, which, you know, I'm really, really mad that I missed it this year. But next year, we're doing it. Yeah, I want to go to that next year as well. So hopefully I'll see You'll you there. You'll love it. You'll <laughs> love it. Brilliant. All right. Next question, as you know, then. It's not. It's very refreshing having a guest who's heard the questions and prepared. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, a, a movie and or a documentary that you love? All right. The documentary is going to be easy. I don't watch documentaries and here's why. When I, when I look at a nutrition documentary and I see the cherry picking of the data and I see how they can skew it, 
to make people understand it incorrectly. And that's my area of expertise. I figure if I can look at that documentary and know it's full of crap, but I'm not an expert on whatever topic I'm looking at on the other documentary, they're feeding me full of crap on that too. So I refuse to watch documentaries. But as far as movies, I love um, Concussion with Will Smith. And the reason I love it is because of the science behind it and the fact that the scientist was the underdog and he came out on top. Very good. You know, I remember seeing that, you know, advertised a while ago and I and I missed it. So I'm going to have to go back and watch that. Oh, so good. Love it. Beautiful. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on the podcast as a guest, speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? James, we're going to need to schedule another podcast so I can just give you my list of guests. <laughs> but all right. I have I'm, I narrowed it down to two. And I had like 12 on here. The first one, I don't believe you've had her. It would be Police Chief Kristen Zeman from the Aurora Police Department, Aurora, Illinois. And the reason I would suggest her is that she is the hands down. Okay, I want to be Kristen Zeman when I grow up. They had an active shooter incident a year ago in February. Their department absolutely crushed it. Um, And she is just such an amazing leader. And she was so eloquent on all of the press releases and the conferences. I just, I look up to her very much. So I think she would be a great guest. The other person that I would recommend is Wendy Lund. Wendy is Canadian and she is a mental health expert who talks a lot about wellness and resiliency and all of those good things. And she also has an awesome accent and she says a boot. So <laughs> I would I would recommend Wendy. Beautiful. And are you able to connect me with either of those two? I sure can. Excellent. Let's make it happen. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. The next question. Um, what do you do to decompress? I have. <clears throat> so there is a wonderful woman I believe she lives in Florida, but her name is Dana Santos, and she is known as the mobility maker. And Dana has an initiative called Walk Every Damn Day. And so I try to walk every damn day because it's a great autonomic nervous nervous system reboot. So I walk every damn day. And then I also enjoy the hell out of, um, yeah, those little succulent plants. And so I have a ton of them in my house that I, you know, care for like a grandma. I've heard of Mobility Maker, so I want to say I might follow her on Instagram, actually. Oh, she's amazing, too. She would be a great guest as well. Brilliant. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to pick up your other other ones from the list as we go on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you. Brilliant. Thank you. All right, so then the last thing, this is just kind of reiterate where people can find you online. I, I am most active on Instagram. And I'm kind of the same across all of the, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fire SQ Fitness. But if you would like to connect with me via email, there's a chat feature on my website. So again, www.firesqfitness.com. Beautiful. Well, Annette, I want to say thank you so much. It's been two hours now. And um, I, again, I want to say thank you to the Fire Inside podcast because listening to your interview with with him um really going to give me some great uh 
background so I could kind of pull the same things out of you that you discussed as well. So the parallel between your physical fitness journey and then your mental fitness journey has been extremely powerful. And then obviously with you being in the NSCA space and highly regarded by some of the top coaches that I've had on, that speaks volumes as far as your voice in the fire service as well. So thank you for being so generous with your time today. I really appreciate your time, James. This was a lot of fun. You said two hours, it feels like it was two minutes.